Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our email newsletter, our app, and of course, at the website SupChina.com. We offer uncensored reporting on everything from the burgeoning tech cold war to the Belt and Road, from the latest infrastructure undertakings to the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in lovely downtown Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from that picaresque Sylvan Idol gold corn holler in Nashville, Tennessee, is a man whose laudable perseverance on a notoriously difficult instrument has recently earned him the position of second chair washboard player in the Middle Tennessee Regional Old Time Revival Ensemble. I speak, of course, of Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn, a.k.a. Jin Yumi. Uh, congratulations, Jeremy, on this attainment. Uh, would you grace the people with a wave and a greeting? Hello, people. Here is a wave and a greeting all the way from Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> all right. All right. Great. Well, today, Jeremy, uh, we have a special treat. One of our favorite podcast hosts and a guy who's been doing his excellent show as long as we've been doing Seneca joins us today uh, for actually going. He's going to be on the other side of the mic as a guest this time. Although, of course, he is very welcome to ask some questions himself. Eric Olander, who joins us from Shanghai, is familiar to many of you as the host of the outstanding China in Africa podcast, part of the China Africa Project. Over the years, he's hosted in-depth, balanced, and marvelously diverse conversations with a stellar list of people working on Africa-China issues. Hopefully, if our efforts here are up, we'll be cross-posting this episode both on the Seneca Network and on the China Africa Project. Eric, a long overdue and very warm welcome to Seneca. A very warm welcome from a cold, dark, polluted Shanghai. Don't you miss it, uh, Kaiser? I, I don't. <laughs> I do miss Beijing. <laughs> I, I never really lived in Shanghai for very long. I actually spent about six months commuting there, but I had a girlfriend in Beijing and was back on every weekend. Never really. We had AQI today of uh, 250 in the purple zone. So uh, enjoy the clean air in Durham, North Carolina. I am. I am. Eric, I'm delighted to have you finally on board. Um, I've been on your podcast before, and I am honored that you're now on ours. Also joining us at Eric's kind introduction is Anzetsi Wera, a Nairobi-based independent development economist, researcher, and analyst. She has written extensively on issues related to Chinese investment in Kenya, in East Africa, and around the African continent. Anzetsi, a very warm welcome to Seneca. Thank you. It's, late. it's great to be here. And that's it, Eric. Uh, let me first suggest a bit of framing for our conversation. Uh, I'm sure that you're both heartily sick of, of dealing with people who jam uh, China's complex relations with, with 54 different countries into one rubric of China-Africa. So I suggest today we focus instead on Kenya as a particularly interesting but not necessarily typical relationship. Uh, and forgive me if we ask some questions that wander at least into East Africa a bit, maybe Djibouti. Uh, but we're not going to reinvent the wheel and talk about all the problems with you know Western media narratives on China and Africa. Uh, but let's try to zero in on some of the big themes dominating conversations right now involving Kenya, uh, debt, and what appears to be uh, mounting U.S.-China competition in Africa. Sound good? Yeah, sure. So that sounds great. Sounds good. All right. All right. Uh, so with this in mind, I want to start maybe by uh, asking you and Zetsi to set the scene in Kenya. Uh, my sense, never having looked 
too closely uh, was that Kenya has long been an area of really extensive American involvement. Uh, I mean, we don't need to go back too, too far, but, you know, certainly since September 11th and the so-called War on Terror. Uh, but there's also, you know, a lot of involvement before that during the Cold War. And and afterward, there was, of course, the fact that President Obama's father was Kenyan himself. Uh, substantial increases to aid to Kenya during the Obama administration. And, you know, at least unlike other presidents or one other president, he didn't call Kenya a shithole country. Uh, in, in any case, my, my impression has been that, let's say, if, if there were a ledger that, that noted countries that, let's say, since China began its high-profile push to court African states, uh, if it that said if they tilted pro-Washington versus pro-Beijing, Kenya probably would rank among the pro-Washington ones. Um, is that a misperception on my part? And maybe can you give us a sense for how views in the U.S. and, and China within Kenyan society have moved in the last uh, decade or so? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the framing of pro-Washington or pro-Beijing, I think, oversimplifies um, the Kenyan reality. So if you look at the historical interaction with the U.S., I mean, the really first one was obviously the slave trade. Um, I think in terms of Kenya, in terms of the modern Kenyan state, the really first uh, taste we got was just during the post-independence era, where uh, basically during that time, African governments that had just gained independence uh, did so during the Cold War, so they had to choose either Washington and capitalism or socialism and Russia. So Kenya was one of the countries that chose capitalism from the beginning. Um, so we've been an open, well, to a certain extent, an open capitalistic society for a fairly long time. So in that sense, um, the U.S. didn't have any sort of ideological walls um, that they had to bash down in Kenya. We already had a welcoming um, sort of predisposition ideologically. I think really the, the definers of the Cold War in Kenya and Africa, in some ways, tainted a negative picture of the U.S. on the continent. I mean, huh. the fact that um, they were seen to be supporting the assassination of Lumumba, they were seen to be supporting and, and almost in, in, emboldening the, the tenure of despotic presidents such as Mobutu. Because you have to remember that within the Cold War, the specific behavior of the African leaders were not important. What was important at the time was their ideological position. So in many ways, Africa became uh, a ground for proxy wars and ideological warfare that did not necessarily benefit the African publics, although may, one or two African leaders may have gotten off quite well. So I think you have to bear in mind that uh, from a historical perspective, the U.S. was seen in the lens of the Cold War and pushing a very specific ideological position into Africa and not minding if, you know, unsavory African leaders were propped up in the meantime. So once the Cold War ended um, and we sort of had this post-Cold War era, the rise of the U.S. and the rise of globalization, what was another problematic legacy the U.S. had was the structural adjustment programs mm. um, that were really masterminded with the IMF in particular and the World Bank. Now, these were all meant to put African economies, including Kenya, on a better, steady economically, address debt issues, address public financing. Um, and although there are mixed reviews as to the success, I think a lot of the intellectuals in Africa, myself included, are of the view that the structural adjustment programs were not successful and in many ways antagonized and um, led to a, a dampened the growth of um, African economies. Um, 
Then that was then followed by the, the HIPIC, which is a debt alleviation program for many African economies. So I mean, I think going forward a bit more, 9-11 was a very key um, event for, for Africa and for Kenya, particularly because mm -hmm. of our location in the Horn of Africa. We're right next to Somalia. And as, as the war on terror um, progressed, it became increasingly clear that Al-Shabaab, which is located in Somalia, um, was ideologically linked in terms of um, um, Islamic terrorism, and Kenya became a victim, quite frankly, of this global war on terror. We had several attacks. In fact, um, just today, we've just sustained an attack. It's not clear if it's terrorism, but it is very clear that from that point of view, um, Kenya does appreciate the support it gets from the U.S. government around military um, and sort of army-related training and support and technical capacity building. Um, I think in terms of Obama, of course, everybody was in love with him in Kenya, but there was a feeling that we were sort of shut out to a certain extent. There were no real bilateral deals uh, made with Kenya during his administration. Um, and I think there was a feeling that he overcompensated uh, for his links to Kenya by not being seen to favor Kenya. That is not to say he right, wasn't right. loved, but, but we did feel that we could have done a lot more um, with that relationship. And so then that brings us to Trump now, which is a very interesting presidency from a Kenyan perspective, because I don't think Kenyans or Africans in general have seen a White House like this, certainly not in living memory. Um, so no one has. <laughs> <laughs> You're not alone. Yeah, so we're trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, the president today just released um, his response on Prosper African, of course, as expected in diplomatic circles. He wants to work with the U.S. government to see what can be done there. So if you look at the broad blueprint or footprint of the U.S. and Africa, of the U.S. and Kenyan and Africa, it's been mixed. Um, there are things that we like. Certainly, the amount of foreign direct investment that the American government and American private sector brings into Africa is welcome. The spread of financing capabilities the U.S. has is welcome. There continues support to civil society organizations and human rights. But on the other hand, we do have a problem with sort of the 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 conditionalities of a lot of the 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 debt that we get into or the loans that we get into, and sort of the continued. Um, emphasis of uh, telling sort of African governments what to do. And of course, the Cold War yeah. stuff that I talked about and the structural adjustment programs and all of that. So it's a mixed picture. It's not like the US can be positive or negative. It's, it's, it's nuanced. That's terrific. Uh, that's a really, really great encapsulation. Uh, let's turn now to the other side, to, to China, and talk about its much shorter involvement and when that really started and, and what the contours of that have been. Yeah, I mean, China has been a fascinating one because it really is very young. I think people forget how young China is in Africa. It's only about 20 years old in terms of a concerted diplomatic push with economic focus in Africa. So it's it's very young if you compare it to the U.S. or European powers in Africa. Now, one of the reasons why China became so big in countries like Kenya is because it didn't have the um, negative historical legacy issues that European and North American powers had. So Europe had the colonization problem, and of course the U.S. had the slavery problem. So China was really coming into Africa over the past 20 years with a very clean slate. In fact, they were um, seen to be supporting the independence movements of, of African publics and African governments. Um, I think, secondly, one of the reasons why China became so big in countries like Kenya and Africa 
is because um, it didn't, it's not prescriptive in its interaction with African governments. I think right. a lot of the European and North American governments tend to be quite prescriptive and have a very clear idea of what Africa should do to develop and, and get people out of poverty. Now, China is the biggest economy that's done that, pulling literally millions out of poverty. But they don't come with any sort of high-handedness, lecturing Africa, barking orders, telling them that you must follow uh, model China. They're quite humble in their articulation, certainly to African people, saying that, well, this has been the Chinese experience. We don't know what you want, what you, what you can learn, and what you don't want to learn. So they're not prescriptive. But of course, the biggest thing I think that African governments like is that they don't lecture about anything. They don't really seem to have an opinion <laughs> on anything outside the deals. Um, so I think African governments appreciate the fact that, at least in terms of public relations and communications with them, there's no sense that they view themselves as superiors that can sort of engage in patronizing down talk to African, sovereign African governments. So I think those three factors, the lack of historical legacy, the fact that they're not prescriptive, and the fact that they seem to respect the dignity of African governments, really made them popular with African governments. Now that's shifting a bit as African publics become more vocal. Yeah, and let's talk about that. Uh, you know, Eric, uh, we missed this window really for a show immediately after FOCOC, which was in the fall of last year. But I heard the one that you and Kobus did, also featuring Anzetsi. And I, I hope you don't mind that we might retread some of the same ground for cynical listeners who aren't regular China and Africa podcast listeners, although they ought to be, uh, especially since we're focusing primarily on Kenya for this show. So uh, FOCOC, uh, of course, is the Forum for Africa-China Cooperation, which is held with tremendous fanfare every three years. Uh, in the fall of 2018, it was in Beijing. And uh, you talked about the events surrounding this. It was really remarkable. Um, can you tell us succinctly what happened right after FOCOC in Nairobi uh, with China's main television network office? I, I don't know if it's called CGTN there or CCTV still, but... Uh, it's, CG, uh, it's CGTN. I mean, it was remarkable both what happened here in China and in, in Kenya. We'll, we'll start first in Kenya. And in, it, before Kenya, President Kenyatta was even back to Nairobi, uh, someone and we don't know quite who in the Kenyan government thought it would be a good idea to go in and do visa checks and on Chinese government <laughs> media. And, and again, what's so interesting here is that it's very, very hard to, to assign kind of who's behind what. And it's a little bit like looking at the, what happens here in China, where you just it's so opaque, you don't really know. So Kenya, Daniel, you know, they went in, in FOCAC, they were looking for the second round of funding for... Uh, the SGR, which is the standard gauge railway. They didn't get it. He came back empty-handed, and that put Kenyatta in a terrible position because Kenyatta right now is under enormous pressure from the public to, to really justify the amount of debt that he's taking on from the Chinese. And so here he comes back empty-handed. And then what ends up happening is a very, very public immigration raid happens at CGTN. And they basically perp walk out uh, two people who were on visa violations, apparently, allegedly. Uh, they were then cleared two or three days later. But you, you know these kinds of things, they happen normally in back channels. You know, somebody goes to the embassy and says, listen, you got to, you know, make sure that these guys, you know, get their visas sorted out. Or somebody goes and says, listen, there's going to be a raid at three o'clock tomorrow. You need to make sure those people aren't there. So not only was there a raid that happened, but the media was alerted to it. So there was some type of organization behind this raid. Then the next day, they went after China Daily, and then they think they even went after China Radio International. Oh, my God. And it was a remarkable series of events that, that happened. 
Were these critics trying to embarrass China? Were they trying to embarrass Kenyatta? Were they out for their own? I mean, it's a little bit, you know, there's a never a sign conspiracy when mediocrity will do. Uh, that is something to live by in these parts of the world. Yeah. It could be coordinated and it also could be completely arbitrary. Uh, but it was very, very interesting. Now, right after that, about a month later, Kenyatta facing enormous domestic pressure, again, from civil society groups and people worried about the debt, needs to show that he can push back on the Chinese. And so one of the areas that that really is starting to pressure Kenyatta are fishermen. And the price of fish has been falling in part because of massive amounts of imported frozen tilapia coming in from China. Hmm, yeah. And so the Kenyatta administration says, you know what, I'm going to show you how I can push back on the Chinese. And he, puts, he implements a ban on frozen fish coming in from China. And the acting ambassador from China just goes apoplectic and loses his mind. And we started to hear for the first time, and this was what was so fascinating, is the imbalance that exists in the relationship. And mm. this is a pattern in Chinese foreign policy that we've seen for millennia here in Asia, where China uses its huge economic power to leverage itself over countries like Vietnam, like Laos, these smaller countries. What we're seeing now with Canada as well, this disproportionate power, this is the tributary type of relationship you've talked about so many times on your show and that Howard French talks about in his latest book. Mm -hmm. Now all of a sudden, they talk about economic sanctions. They talk about halting funding for the SJR. And so all of a sudden, China is wielding this massive power that it said in the past it would never do. And so, we, again, we heard the threats coming out from the acting ambassador and from the embassy. And then three weeks later, in a very, very humbling way, an embarrassing way, Kenyatta has to backtrack and remove the, the, this moratorium on, on Chinese imported fish. So wow. that was all of a sequence of events in maybe four to six weeks after FOCAC. And so meanwhile, here in China, FOCAC was not greeted anywhere near what people thought it would be. You know, the government, you know these things from living yeah, here. Yeah. You know, they put out all the flowers. They have the posters. They have the whole thing. The whole country is celebrating FOCAC. Every taxi man is talking about it. And yet people on social media are starting to gripe, saying, why are we giving Africans all this money? Right. And they don't understand that most of that money is in the form of loans that, well, they're paying, they're, they're profiting from. But at the end of the day, it was starting to cause problems here domestically as well. So we said in our show that $60 billion doesn't buy you what it used to anymore. No, no. And it's very, very interesting that no one seemed to be happy, both in Kenya and in China. The immediate aftermath of FOCAC was, uh, was a considerable disappointment, I think, for the leaders. Okay, that, that really sets the stage extremely well for the conversation that will follow then. Uh, uh, one of the things besides you know tilapia being back on the menu, uh, obviously uh, debt is something that, well, I think most of us would, would agree we ought to think seriously about no matter who you are, whether you're a household or a business or a state, taking on a lot of debts is uh, something you ought to, to give serious consideration to before undertaking. But these days, there's just a ton of conversation around debt. I mean, it's happening in the recipient countries. It's happening in, in Washington. It's happening everywhere about debt sustainability, about so-called debt trap diplomacy. And more concerns are, are being raised more loudly across more countries in Africa about this. Uh, what is driving this change in the narrative, uh, specifically in, in Kenya? Uh, can you talk about that, Nzitsi? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think definitely there has been, first of all, bear in mind that generally African governments have been racking up debt. 
whether it's with the Chinese, whether it's with Eurobonds, whether it's with multilateral institutions or bilateral. So there's been preceding the focus on Chinese debt, there was already concern in economic and development circles around the rate at which African governments are uh, accruing debt and whether they really have the capacity to pay back that debt, whether the debt is sustainable and whether to lead to debt distress or default. So couch the conversation of China in a broader concern about debt in Africa. Now, if you look at the specific Chinese questions, I think there are two things going on here. I think, first of all, definitely there is concern in the, in the global north, particularly Europe and North America, as to a re-exposure of African governments um, to debt, which they had just been relieved of just a few decades ago in the HIPIC initiative, that African governments are going back into deep indebtedness. And their concern is that they're doing it with a party that the world does not really understand in terms of how it deals with debt defaults and how it deals with repayments of I think um, the Europe and North America were much more comfortable when debt owed was in their hands, obviously because they had the control, but I think because they had a common understanding on how that would be addressed. They do not know how the Chinese are going to do this. So that, I think, is, going, is, is causing concern globally. From a Kenyan perspective, Chinese debt is one of the many types of debt we're having a big problem with. I think if you look at the scale of debt that we have, and we have a $50 billion in debt. Of that, Chinese debt is about $5.4 billion. So Chinese debt is a proportion to our total debt is only about 11%. Mm -hmm. But it, in terms of our bilateral debt, which is external debt, it's about 73.4% 73, 73 of our bilateral debt. So at one time, we're saying, listen, country is getting heavily indebted. How are we going to pay back? And then China is single-handedly being seen as a very significant creditor. Now, there are other things that are going on in the background that are informing this. Of course, there's a certain narrative, the debt trap narrative that's being pushed. And to a certain extent, Kenyans are responding to this narrative and agreeing with this narrative. But the bigger issue, I think, from a Kenyan's perspective, is the lack of fiscal accountability for the debt. And because the Chinese have made it very clear that they do debt um, deals in a certain way, that fiscal opacity is enabled and tolerated in Chinese debt. The concern around Chinese debt is that we don't know the terms, we don't know what is owed, and we don't know what the consequences will be. There is a certain sense that with multilateral institutions, such as the African Development Bank or the World Bank, with traditional partners um, in Europe and North America. There's more transparency. There's, and, there's, yeah. and there's more history. You know, frankly, there's just more yeah. history okay. there. But okay. for China, that's not the case. So it's really a confluence of factors that's really making Chinese debt uh, become a key point of focus. And of course, with the SGR, uh, the Standard Gauge Railway being the main reason why we got into that debt, the key issues around the SGR in terms of how it was costed, the key issue in terms of how Kenya paid for the trains and the rolling stock, the corruption allegations in terms of the land allocation. So even though SGR is up and running to a certain extent, there, it is still a lot of controversy purely from an economic point of view. And the sad reality is that very same SGR that is the bulk of Chinese debt um, to Kenya. In October last year, you wrote a piece in Business Daily Africa, and you've written elsewhere as well, arguing against this debt trap diplomacy narrative. You made the interesting argument that not only does the embrace of this narrative strip African states of agency, but it gives them a kind of cop-out, the ability to plead ignorance and claim victimization rather than to assume responsibility for their policy decisions. 
Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, th- I think, first of all, um, the whole issue of African agency is one that has been undermined through the entire China-Africa relationship. I think we are always being seen to be acted upon. I think the reality that African governments have agency is always seems to be ignored, you know, even in the 21st century. This debt trap narrative is a perfect example of that. It infantilizes African governments who have experience in doing debt deals. China is not the first country they're getting into for significant debt. That's one. I think the second issue is that it begins the process of preventing them from being held accountable um, or to the deals that they make. If you look at the sort of qualifications that the Kenyan government requires of the Cabinet Secretary of Treasury, this is somebody who went to school in Ivy League in universities in the USA, but suddenly when it comes to China, he doesn't know what he's doing. So it, becomes, it begins the process of erasing that, that accountability. But I think above all, it prevents or really begins to create a wall between the interests of the African people and the interests of, of Western um, ideological positioning. I think if you look at the Kenyan debt from a Kenyan perspective, our issue is fiscal accountability, efficiency in expenditure, and how much money is being lost to corruption. That is the priority of the Kenyan people. And this debt trap narrative really pushes that to the side and makes it about China. We do not want it to be about China. Our governments know what they're doing. And even if China, even if Kenya owed China 80% of our debt, that is still squarely on the, on the shoulders of, of the Kenyan government. So again, I think this continued infantilization, which is what China does not do, you see. The West is continuing in this tradition of having quite a patronizing attitude and acting as though African governments need to be supervised. But uh, the debt trap narrative is just a continuation of that. So I don't think it's a particularly healthy narrative uh, from an African perspective, but I also think it does show the old-fashioned view um, that the global north tends to have with regards to African governments. That's that's fascinating. Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about the standard gauge rail and that loan. Eric, i th- throw it over to you. Uh, I keep seeing these pieces that are pro or anti, uh, some very alarming if true or merely you know, alarmist if not true, about what the contracts would say about what would happen to the Port of Mombasa should the Kenyan government actually default. Uh, Uhuru Kenyatta has talked about making the, the, the terms of this contract publicly available. Uh, has he done that yet, first of all? He, he hasn't done it yet. It is it is something that has been leaked in pieces, and and I have actually not published any of the leaked pieces in part because we just don't know what's real and what's legitimate. And let's not also underestimate domestic Kenyan politics and how China is a football here. Remember, Kenyan society in many ways is is as divided as American society is. Uh, there are it's highly factionalized, it's highly partisan. Elections always come down to you know, to millimeters in terms of distance between, you know, rival parties. Uh, And so, and China is really in many ways this football that gets kicked around because the Chinese are so terrible at public relations, public communication (laughs) that you can bash the Chinese. I mean, they're really just, they're idiots when it comes to it. Somebody needs to go and put the uh, PR back in the PRC. (laughs) Well, that's right. And so they, so what ends up happening is you can say anything you want against the Chinese and they don't respond. So they make for a very, very useful boogeyman to say, I'm not defending the Chinese in any way, but it is a very useful tool that opposition parties beat Kenyatta with over and over again with little political consequence. Now, on the SGR, so let's just kind of step back a little bit and understand the gamble that leaders like Kenyatta are making. And he is not the only one across the continent, all 54 countries or 53 that are taking Chinese money. Uh, the Iswatini is still a Taiwan ally, so they don't get any Chinese money. <laughs> 
But, uh, you know, everybody else is making this gamble. Remember that this is a population in the next 30 to 40 years that is going to be at about two, two and a half billion people. It's got a median age of 18 years old. It's urbanizing as fast as what China has done in the past 20 years. So these leaders are making really cold, rational calculations that they have to figure out ways to industrialize and and build manufacturing centers as quickly as they possibly can. They are in a race against time. So someone like Kenyatta says, okay, I've got to get transportation facilities down. The port doesn't mean anything if I can't get rail connections to it, if I can't get road connections to it, if I can't open Mm. up the Lake Victoria region in East Africa. And now what we're starting to see also is the integration of African economies there is starting to see some some progress towards at least parts of the Pan-African dream that we've talked about for 50 years. So if people and goods can move easier, that will then help them offset this massive growth of population. So that's the gamble that someone like Kenyatta is taking. Railway is, is really critical here. Remember that for 50 years in the post-colonial era, the West did nothing to help infrastructure development in Africa. Right. Nothing. Not a single railway was built. Wow. And yet the Chinese have come in and have built the first international railways. They're building cross-border railways. They're building, well, they did build the Tanzara there. But, you know, there was different gauges of railways depending on what colony you were part of, the French and the British. Okay, so now we have the standard gauge. So they're trying to kind of create standards across the continent. And it's super important. Now, he takes this massive gamble to borrow huge amounts of money to build the, the standard gauge railway, phase one and phase two. Now, people are saying for the most part that he overpaid, and especially compared to some of the railways that were built in Ethiopia and Djibouti, uh, it is more expensive. The Chinese will tell you it's a bigger infrastructure challenge, an engineering challenge that they had to go through some of the, the huge long deserts in Kenya that entailed that. But think about this, and this is a point that Kobus, my co-host, brings up. If we were around at the time of the building of the New York subway system, we would have seen massive amounts of corruption, massive inefficiencies. We would have seen the slow take-up of the subway the same way that people are criticizing the SGR right now because the trucking industry in Kenya is really fighting hard to make sure that it stays viable and doesn't move goods onto the SGR for cargo rail. So all of this is happening in real time, but they didn't have social media when the London subway was being built or the New York subway was being built. We get to watch this minute by minute on social media and everybody gets to kind of put their two cents into it. So I don't think that the building of African infrastructure today is any different than the building of New York infrastructure was a century ago. And I think that's something super important to keep in to keep in mind. My South African co-host says basically the same thing when, it, when he talks about uh, all this you know, allegations of overcapacity and building out of, of, of China's, of Beijing's subways or Shanghai's subways, you know. People argue that they're not needed, they're going to be empty. And then, you know, two weeks later, they're like packed like sardine cans. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. You got to give this time. You have to give these things time. And it's not had a lot of time yet. It's uh, super expensive. It's a huge gamble that Kenyans are taking with their economic future. But what's the choice here? You, you raised an issue, Eric, that, that I want to I ask Nzetsi about because it, it's fascinating to me. Um, I don't have a good sense of how you, – you, you talked about how the complexities of Kenyan domestic politics are as every bit as, as contentious as, as in the U.S. I certainly believe that. I'm just, just watching what's been happening since with the, the, the election since 07. But 
I want to understand how attitudes toward China within Kenyan society tend to cluster with other policy preferences. Okay. Uh, are there clear patterns that emerge among different demographic groups? You know that may tend to say view the U.S. more favorably or China more favorably. No, I I I think it's more of an ideological when it comes to China. I, I think just adding to what mm-hmm. um, Eric is saying before I answer that in terms of China, I think one of the things people forget is how young Africa is and how young China is. This is really the first time both of these parts of the world are coming together as modern states that cooperating in a spirit of capitalism, right? In the past, that simply was not there. So there are bound to be issues, but you can be sure that China is learning and you can be sure that Africa is learning. I think it is unfair when global North, particularly Europe and North America, tend to expect China to have the capacity and experience that they have. They've been in the continent for far longer and they have far more experience. So I think in terms of SGR, there is an issue around the efficiency of it, uh, the level of corruption that seems to have been facilitated through it. But I think, quite frankly, this is good news for Kenya because we are going to have to get our shape um, into our house into order if we ever uh, want to get proper Chinese money going forward. I think in terms of the ideological and demographic realities, no. I think broadly you'll find that there are two camps of Kenyans. There are Kenyans who view Chinese as an enemy that wants to recolonize the continent. And then there are Kenyans who view Chinese as uh, the best option out of very difficult friends. So I think on one hand, there's the reality that as, as, as Eric pointed out, that in terms of infrastructure financing, there hasn't been very much. But I think you need to couch that in the reality of the sheer scale of Africa. I think people forget how big Africa is when they're talking about infrastructure. The infrastructure deficit number is thrown around, but quite frankly, if Africa was the size of Europe, this wouldn't be such a big problem. We'd be able to cover this land a lot bigger. So one of the strategic questions around Chinese debt and the Chinese deliberate focus on infrastructure is one, they saw a gap in terms of the financing. Two, obviously in terms of getting goods into Africa from China, getting products from Africa out back, uh, or natural resources from Africa into China as well. But more broadly, they are seeing the long, they're really playing the long game in Africa. And I don't think people really appreciate how patient the Chinese are. And I think in addition to what Eric was saying, where the Chinese don't respond to communications, I agree, their comms is horrible. But they're also like, let them say what they want to say, we'll be here in 50 years. Because if you look at the demographic dividend that Eric was talking about, even if you look at how Chinese private sectors coming into Africa, they are really focusing on African markets. They are not really trying to manufacture or sell goods outside of Africa using Africa as a launch pad. They're saying we're going to sit here and we're going to get market share early so that when this demographic boom really kicks in, we will already have taken over market share. So remember that the infrastructure uh, approach is not only part of the Belt and Road Initiative, which you can get into a bit later, but it's also part of China's very deliberate strategy to get market share and facilitate the interconnection of African um, countries, not only for imports from China, but also to feed the, the, the African market through Chinese private sector active on the continent. Excellent, excellent. Kaiser, this is a really important point. Just, I just want to emphasize what Ensetze is saying here, is that this long-term view. You know, a couple months ago, uh, a Kenyan newspaper did an investigation and found horrific examples of racism on the SGR, of Chinese managers who were treating local employees terribly. And I mean, it really, you know, if it was true, it's it's horrific. And it's that typical, it plays right into the the stereotypes that people have, not just about Chinese, but about foreigners in general in, in Africa. And it really kind of played into this colonialism and this lack of respect. And China sure, sets it sure, up as yeah. we're win-win development. And here we have a bunch of kind of treating people like crap. 
And, you know, and so a lot of people were saying, you know what, this is it. This is the thing that's going to really get to the Chinese. And I started to recognize that the Chinese were not responding to any of this with the traditional type of, of comms. You know, we in the West would then, you know, have a PR team that would go out and they would do some CSR and they would try to repair the image, you know, the community building type of stuff. Chinese didn't do anything of that. Huh. And it started to dawn on me that maybe they don't care. You know, the Chinese deal, they prefer to deal elite to elite. They prefer to, they don't, civil society really isn't in their game plan at all. And if they're doing what Ensetze is talking about, which I do think they are, which they're thinking in terms of decades, even centuries, you know what? These little blips on the radar don't matter. So it's one of the things that when you look at what China's doing, not just in Africa, but even in other parts of the world, we obsess over every little detail. They don't. And I think that's something really, really important when you're studying Africa and how the Chinese respond, that, you know, this isn't the kind of thing that gets under their skin. Fascinating. Uh, that's, that's entirely possible, although that was certainly not the case when I was doing comms for a big Chinese internet company. Everything was a f- crisis that needed putting out yesterday. But Well, the company is different than the state, of course. Yeah, of course. The of company course. being different than the state. <laughs> Can I just add to Eric? I think there is a tension going on, quite frankly. Let's, let's distinguish between Chinese uh, private sector and Chinese government. I think there's an interesting ch- tension emerging in the Chinese government. On one hand, I agree that to a certain extent they will not be reactive in terms of allegations of this or that or this or that because they're there for the long haul. That said, Xi Jinping is really repositioning um, China as a global leader. So I do think there is growing sensitivity to brand China. And I think if you look at, number one, sort of the ideological push that, 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 that the Chinese government is doing through the socialism with Chinese characteristic, the pushes that they're doing through the Confucius Institutes, the pushes that they're doing in terms of inviting African students to study in China, um, obviously the push that they do in terms of you know cultural exchanges and all that sort of stuff. There is an understanding that brand China is important. And I think they're treated very unfairly in terms of the Chinese brand because they get all the slack of what private sector China does. When an oil company from the US or the UK misbehaves in Nigeria, that does not reflect on the U.S. or U.K. government. But when a Chinese private sector company misbehaves in Africa, suddenly that is a reflection of brand China. So I think that the Chinese government is also beginning to understand they need to start managing this brand issue because ideological uh, positioning and goodwill is quite important in Africa in terms of public opinion. So I think we're going to see going forward an interesting evolution on how the Chinese government begins to more deliberately manage its brand. Now, it will not be in the traditional way that Europe and North America do it in terms of, you know, TV ads or social media blitzes. They will continue to do it their way, uh, but I think it will be very deliberate because they are beginning to understand that the goodwill of African publics is actually quite important if their activity as government or their activity as private sector is to go as seamlessly as possible. Sincere, heartfelt behavioral changes would go a long way too. Yeah, and I mean the government anyway. is doing it to a certain extent. I was in a conference where yeah. they are trying to start um, uh, putting a bit more strict requirements on Chinese private sector active in Africa. They are beginning to see that there are certain regulations that they should be held accountable for even when they're outside of China. So we'll see what happens there. Okay, great. Um, I want to move on now and then and, and talk about uh, you, t- you talked about this sort of long-term game plan. The game that is now afoot, you might say, you know, is, is a contest between China and the United States for, for, for influence in that part of the world. Let's talk about John Bolton's speech at the Heritage Foundation on December 13th of last year. 
Bolton, of course, is the uh, mustachioed walrus. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Bolton, of course, <laughs> is the U.S. national security advisor, formerly the U.N. ambassador from the U.S. under George W. Bush, a man who has never seen a war he doesn't like. He took over as national security advisor after H.R. McMaster left the White House, which was what, like uh, 15 major Trump administration departures ago. <laughs> Bolton really went after China in that speech. He characterized Chinese policy as all about dependency, domination, and debt. So, first, Anzette, how did this play in African capitals? Is there a dominant media narrative coming out of Nairobi, for instance, over the Bolton speech? I mean, you'll be surprised, but it didn't really make a blip, honestly. I mean, I think there was a report on huh. it. I think there was no really, and it's really very the, interesting. This is, the, this is the thing that Americans struggle to understand is that irrelevance is coming. <laughs> and, and, and that, that is, it's hard for us to understand that it didn't make a blip. I mean, that's just great. No, it crisis. really, I mean, if you compare the fanfare of FOCAC, Compared to Bolton's speech, you cannot even compare the amount of me media attention that went to FOCAC, the post-analysis, post-post-post-analysis. And then Bolton said his speech, there were a couple of articles in African papers. I was one of the few um, who actually wrote on this. Um, but generally, I think, given the size of the American economy, etc., it did not create the waves and ripples that I think the administration had been had been hoping for. And I think there are a couple of reasons behind that. I think, first of all, um, Africa has generally gotten the feeling that we are not a priority um, for this administration, and I think we had made peace with that. Um, so when this new uh, strategy was unveiled, we were like, okay, great, let's see if actually anything is ever done. And I think this is something, again, the U.S. needs to remember, is that this is one of the most um, unpredictable white houses in a long time. So one, something can be said today, but sometimes that is not necessarily what happens tomorrow. So I think there is a certain level of skepticism around in Africa, like, okay, that's the plan, but how will it actually pan out? Will this be the position in three, three months? Will this be the position in two years? We do not know. I think that's one thing. I think the main thing that concerned Africans or certainly me and analysts uh, from Bolton, first of all, there were very good elements to the, the new U.S. strategy. I, th I think certainly the focus on private sector development is so welcome. And as a development economist who focuses on private sector development in Africa, one of the biggest strengths the U.S. has is simply the array of financing options that it presents in terms of government and in terms of private sector. So I think America coming alive to just how deep it can get into Africa in terms of investment is one of the greatest aspects of this prosper Africa. I think the, the biggest concern was sort of the, the, the us versus them, the very simplistic binary posturing that Bolton seemed to be doing. I think the fact that this announcement was made from the security, national security department, rather than from the state department, I think also raised eyebrows. Why is Africa being positioned as a security, uh, in the security department rather than the state department? But I think it was a bit of a, 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 bit of a disappointment um, because I think um, a lot of Africans had, had, had expected um, America's understanding of, of Africa to be a lot more nuanced and understanding that the complexities of working and living in Africa will simply not fall into an us versus them, particularly when you're looking at private sector, which is where the U.S. wants to focus. You know, you can have an African firm that uses U.S. capital um, and uses Chinese technology. Where does this new U.S. strategy leave those sorts of situations? So I think we had expected a bit more nuance, and I think they lost a very good chance to really position the U.S. as a friend and a, and a, and a, and a real uh, partner in African economic development, particularly in the area of job creation and, and industrialization. Eric, you've actually talked in your podcast before about that kind of complementarity between the, the Chinese approach, which focuses on state sector 
and the American sort of more private sector focused approach. Uh, can you unpack that a bit? Yeah. I mean, last year when the BUILD Act was making its way through Congress, and the BUILD Act is what paved the way for the creation of the International Development Finance Corporation, which is kind of the the stepchild of the OPIC, which is the Organization for Private Investment Corporation or something like yeah, that, some yeah. semi-state government organization that funded private investment or kind of subsidized American businesses trying to go overseas. Now, so they came up with this plan to make a $60 billion uh, development fund, which is interesting that that's the same number that China's been using at FOCAC for these past <laughs> yeah, years. Yeah, I thought, I thought there was a years. strange coincidence so there. That just doesn't seem a coincidence to me. But so they positioned it in such a way that this is going to challenge China in the developing world. Um, it's kind of laughable because $60 billion is what China's spending just in Africa every three years. And this is what the United States has worldwide. But let's put that aside for now. But they positioned it as, aha, we're coming to the game now finally to challenge China. And then when we started talking to analysts on our podcast about what the BUILD Act and what IDFC actually does, it's not challenging China at all. It's not intended to challenge China. Instead, they actually complement each other very, very well. So a a country like Kenya can turn to China for infrastructure and massive loans from the Chinese for public sector type of development. But yet then IDFC in the U.S. comes in to fund business, American businesses and Kenyan businesses that can't get funding anywhere else and venture capital and things like that. So private capital. So I think in some ways that is a really neat complementarity there. But I just before we get there, let's go back to the Bolton speech really quickly. And let's kind of set the table for what led up to the Bolton speech and why the reaction in Africa was what it was. Because let's remember for the past two years, the Trump administration banned African countries from actually immigrating into the United States. They were on the travel ban. They put steel tariffs on South African steel. They stripped Rwanda of its free trade access into the United States because of the used clothing lobby in the United States wanted to still sell used clothing into Rwanda. Right. So the uh, they they've cut back military spending. They've cut back aid. They've cut back you know, UN spending. All of the key priorities, the United States has been has pulled back. Let's not even talk about the S hole and not even talk about Nambia. You didn't mention Nambia, the famous Nambia quote. So all oh, of right. that lack of respect, <laughs> and then remember, you I've know, been there. It's a great country. He said that, uh, <laughs> you know, Trump said they live in huts. And then on top of it, we have, of course, uh, Melania Trump's kind of, you know, Pith hat, you know, colonial stroll through through Kenya in her, uh, you know, in her hat. Um, and it just shows a collective lack of respect and a lack of face. And so I think people came very cynical to right from the get go that you got to show us something really good. And when they saw that this Bolton policy was America first, China second, Africa third. It just kind of fell on deaf ears because at the end of the day, people were saying, well, what have you done? Power Africa was an Obama program, a $7 billion electric generation program. What has it done? Nothing. Hmm. They haven't even Hmm. fulfilled the entire $7 billion commitment for it. I mean, people on Twitter were saying the last time the Americans made a promise to do something, it, you know, what came of it? The Chinese, they come in, they're going to build a road. That road gets built in three months. Now, the Chinese have a whole ton of problems. Don't get me wrong. 
you know, there's we can sit here for an hour and say all the crappy things that the Chinese have done sure. in Africa, from rhino to, to ivory. But when it comes to actually delivering on these types of promises that people can see and feel and touch versus the promises that the Americans have made over the past 20, 30 years, there's not really a comparison. That's not counting, of course, humanitarian and, and, and you, you know, help like with Ebola and things like that. But when it comes to these key bread and butter types of issues, people are very cynical of the Americans. You mentioned UN funding cuts. Um, John Bolton said in his speech at, at the Heritage Institute that we will no longer support unproductive, unsuccessful, and unaccountable U.S. peacekeeping missions. Uh, this is happening at a time when China is continuing to e- increase its contributions to peacekeeping missions in Africa and is actually contributing the largest number of blue helmets to peacekeeping efforts around the world. How is this being received in African capitals? I mean, I can start. Yeah, please. I'll just say something quick. um, I'll just say I think I think one, I think I think the U.S. has overestimated what we expect of them, as as Eric is saying, Um, and I think Trump made it even clear from his campaign trail that Africa was not going to be a priority. So I don't think there was any collective gasp when Bolton said that there'll be a pullback in U.S. Peace, uh, in, UN, um, in the financing of U.N. peacekeeping in, in Africa, whatever rationale. Now, that said, countries like Kenya, I think, will have special consideration simply because of our proximity to Somalia and the role that we're playing right. regionally in the war on terror. So I think, and this is one thing I think the U.S. Has, has a strength in that China simply does not have. I think on one hand, in terms of the U.S., you can have these declarations coming out of Washington saying, oh, we'll do this and we'll do that. And yes, they will be followed, but... There is a sense I get that in terms of um, embassies domiciled in African capitals, that the staff on the ground have a bit more flexibility to introduce nuance to how that policy is actually implemented. I think that is one of the strengths of the U.S. and Africa is that, yes, it can be a declaration, but the staff do have a certain level of discretion on the ground to see how that will actually be be articulated in the relationship that they have with the country. On the other hand, China has the opposite problem, where... Beijing will say what Beijing will say, and on the ground, there will not be very much flexibility in terms of what um, embassy staff on the ground can do in terms of tweaking or improving on what Beijing says. So with China, you get these very clear, clear-cut strategies, and we're going to do this, and yes, they get done. But as we're seeing, when things start to go wrong, the staff on the ground do not have the flexibility to come in and correct things as and when they happen. So I think even in terms of how foreign policy is implemented, the U.S. and China have very different approaches in Africa, and each um, has its pros and cons. Okay, I think that's enough on that question. Uh, that's that's consonant very much with, I think, the, uh, the two political cultures of these two countries. But uh, I want to ask you about uh, trade. The Trump administration is like the Chinese leadership in, in some regards. So dealing with certain, at least, groups of countries, uh, they both tend to favor doing individual bilateral deals uh, rather than dealing with large blocks. Uh, but they they take a different approach, I, I understand, when it comes to Africa. Uh, Eric and Anzetsi, could you both talk a little bit about the contrasting approaches in how they prefer to fashion, how they, they deal with African the African Union, for example, versus uh, individual bilateral countries? Well, on the political military front, the Chinese love nothing more than a multilateral organization. I mean, it just, they adore it. In fact, they even built the African Union headquarters. And and one of the interesting things about what the Chinese are doing is they're funding uh, ECOWAS in West Africa, which is the West African grouping. They're contributing a lot of money to the Rapid Reaction Force uh, for the African Union. They built the African Union headquarters, which... 
you know, we'll have to put a little asterisk there, which Le Monde is, uh, you know, did an investigative report which indicated that the Chinese were spying on the African Union headquarters. <laughs> that was not corroborated by anybody else, but it is believable, of course, uh, given the world that we live in today and where we are. Uh, so on the on the political military side, the Chinese are really taking a very broad multilateral approach, and it's really very much part of Xi Jinping's, uh, you know, his mantra that he's saying that he's trying to uphold the international order, whereas Trump is unilaterally pulling it down. They want to keep this, and in some ways, they're holding up Africa as an example of this. Uh, the 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 Chinese are very very active in multinational peacekeeping operations, particularly off the coast of Somalia. The PLAN has been in the anti piracy operations. We've talked about UN peacekeeping. Now, that's on the political military side. On the economic side, it's a very, very different story. They vastly prefer dealing one-to-one, elite-to-elite, but there's not even some consistency within a single country. So we've recently spoken to a number of people who tell us that the even within, say, a country like Nigeria, they'll deal on the state level, they'll deal on the federal level, they'll deal at the local level, and it's totally inconsistent. But they do prefer bilaterals when it comes to dealing country by country. There's not the indication yet that they play countries aggressively off of each other. But there's always been the rumors that says, well, if you don't accept our terms, we're just going to go next door to Togo and they'll accept our terms. That's always been the concern of African negotiators. It hasn't really borne itself out over time. But one of the interesting evolutions over, say, the past 10 years, and we talked about 20 years, is that 10, 15 years ago, Uh, the Chinese foreign ministry had an Africa desk and they had all generalists. They knew Africa. They were Hmm. trained in the various Chinese universities as African specialists. Now what we're seeing, and Ansetze has kind of mentioned this, the learning curve has been steep and fast. They have now specialists not only in Nigeria, but in Kano state politics. They have specialists in uh, Kenya, country by country, region by region. They have, you know, regional specialists. They'll have country specialists. They'll have ethnic and linguistic specialists. And it's one of the concerns that came up at FOCAC is that when they go to the negotiating table with the Nigerian delegation or the Kenyan delegation, The Chinese have linguists, they've got their anthropologists, they've got their people who've been in country for, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years, they speak the local language, and are the African counterparts coming with as much knowledge of China as the Chinese are coming of knowledge of Kenya or of Congo or of uh, South Africa, for example? One ambassador to keep an eye on, for example, who really typifies this in so many ways is Lin Songtian out of uh, Pretoria. Uh, And he is part of this new generation of young Chinese diplomats who are holding live TV press conferences, who really understand local South African politics. And he's no longer an Africa specialist. He is a South African specialist. And I think that's something Hmm. really interesting to watch. I think I would agree. That is fascinating. I would agree with Eric. I mean, the number of just embassy staff that speak Swahili, for example, is just stunning. I mean, I don't think you'd find, you know, the equivalent. But I think in addition, just to build on the complexity that, that Eric is talking about, I think the fact that... The, the Chinese do pursue bilateral deals, and we're seeing the U.S. move the same way. In fact, one of the biggest questions Africans did have of the boats and speeches, what's going to happen to AGOA? I mean, if you look at countries like Kenya, we have entire industries built around AGOA, particularly our manufacturing sector with a focus on apparel and, and shoe wear. Uh, spell, spell that out. We'll go f- for our, oh, our listeners who uh, might African not be Growth and Opportunity Act. It's basically a deal that allows mm-hmm. um, African certain African products into the U.S. market duty-free. So the countries like Kenya have really taken advantage of it and built industries around that access. And what we didn't hear from Bolton is what is the future 
of a GOA? And that was a very big question because there was concern that this administration may probably will not renew it. So I do think, as Eric is saying, we will see a shift from the AGOA type of deals to more bilateral type of deals. And so we're going to have situations where African governments are having to negotiate bilateral deals with two of the largest economies in the world. Now that is both an opportunity, but it also is a very big problem because we have serious um, um, uh, constraints in terms of capacity. Now when you look at the sort of deals Africa gets into, for example, with China or with the US, you have to remember that there there's a sliding scale that African governments are grappling with as they try and build up their economic diplomacy capacity. On one hand, you have just technical capacity issues. As Eric pointed out, we are not as well staffed, and I don't think African governments just have the technical, linguistic, et cetera, capacity to match China or the US. But on the other hand, there's a real reality of the corruption scale as well. So you'll find that in some countries, when it comes to making economic deals, depending on who's on the other side of the table, one um, side of the scale or the other will tend to dominate the the deal that is made. There'll be capacity issues on one hand, but I think there'll be very serious corruption issues on the other hand. And that is what makes the China question so complex in Africa. With the standard gauge railway, for example, was this a capacity problem in terms of our inability to negotiate effective contracts? Or was this more of a corruption program where everything was being done with their head above water and people knew exactly what they were doing, but the moral bankruptcy is what led to the fundamental problems we're having here. So I think going forward, as there is increased competition for Africa geopolitically, because I think another big player that we're ignoring in all of this is the European Union. The European Union has a very new renewed push and focus into Africa, again, on jobs and sustainable inv investment and private sector. So we're seeing all of these global powers reconfigure themselves into Africa partly informed by the rise of China and Africa, which is a very interesting thing, as I don't think we'd be getting this much attention if China were not so big in Africa, but it's going to create opportunities. Yes, it's a multipolar world. We can get very many deals, but it will strain African negotiating capacity, and also the question of corruption will be a, a big one to contend with. Very well put, very well put. I want to uh, turn for the very last topic that we touch on uh, and talk about the state of the Belt and Road, particularly the state of the brand of the Belt and Road these days viewed from, from Nairobi and, again, from, from other African capitals. Uh, I feel like uh, maybe has some of the sheen come off of it just in the last year. Uh, originally, you know, Belt and Road didn't include a lot of African countries except maybe portions of East Africa, but uh, things have changed. Well, let's talk about Belt and Road in the kind of classic map of it, which originally was hit, it landed in Mombasa in Kenya and then kind of creeped its way up along the eastern coast. And that's why Djibouti is so important as the military base. But Djibouti is also important in Belt and Road as the main data outpost for the Chinese. So China Telecom has set up the main uh, Belt and Road data hub into Africa there. So there's this big network operations center that then is feeding Belt and Road operations throughout uh, the continent from Djibouti. So it's not just a military outpost, sure. but it's also a data hub as well. And then it goes up through the Suez Canal. And Egypt is a major, major player. And Egypt is often overlooked as a key destination for Chinese attention in Africa, uh, in part because people mistakenly assume it's an Arab country only. It's both an Arab country and an African country. And in this case, in, in the African context, it plays a very important role on Belt and Road, role on Belt and Road. That's the classic kind of definition of it. Those are still very, very strong. I don't think most African people, just like most Americans or anybody else, 
really understands the branding of Belt and Road. We don't have, you know, the Ilaidu kind of things, you know, all, all you know, Iluidai all over the, you know, the posters and everything like that. We, we, there's none of the propaganda. People don't really know what it is. They don't necessarily understand why this port is being put here or why this rail is being put there. It's not part of some big strategy. <laughs> sure. That being said, people do understand that when you get classified a Belt and Road country, cha-ching, the money starts to flow. Ah. So everybody was jockeying uh, to kind of get included on the next list. Senegal is now uh, a Belt and Road country. Why? <laughs> Pete's the hell out of me. I mean, it's not even – It's it just makes no sense. But they, Senegal is going to be the host of the next FOCAC, so it got the designation of a Belt and Road country. I don't know if it matters that much anymore. I mean, the FOCAC is really the buzzword in Africa much more than Belt and Road. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's it's people look at it as as money. And can I just add to? Exactly. Uh, yeah, let me just sure, add to what I, I think. The Belt and Road is an is an interesting one because. One of the reasons I think you're seeing countries that are not necessarily in the original plan of Belt and Road is because the Chinese saw that the Belt and Road was focused on the eastern seaboard and it left out the rest of Africa. So there was already growing tension within Africa itself of why is East Africa being favored by the Chinese in the Belt and Road Initiative? Why aren't the rest of us being involved in the Belt and Road? We also have infrastructure needs. So I think the Chinese began to understand, you know, we do not want to start dividing African sentiments on China. We're going to find a way to make sure all of the regions in Africa are represented in this Belt and Road Initiative. Whether it will be practical is not clear. I think the other thing that could be strengthened in the Belt and Road is how will the uh, infrastructure projects be selected? Because this will really uh, define the uptake, I think, by African governments. Yes, you can become a Belt and Road country, but if the infrastructure financing does not align with the infrastructure plans that the countries already have, then that will become a bit of a problem. But I think if you look at the way the Chinese work, they do tend to let African governments lead in terms of what infrastructure projects um, are priorities. But I think the smartest thing the Chinese could do with the Belt and Road Initiative is to directly link it to the African continental free trade area. I think if they position the Belt and Road Initiative as a means of interconnecting Africa to move goods and products and people across Africa much more easily, they will see the traction pick up. They will see a lot more favorable response. And of course, the cloud over all of this is what will happen to the debt. The BRI is a very, very big risk in terms of pushing Africa into deeper debt and creating more mm. problems in terms of debt sustainability. So I think it's still early days yet in the BRI, but I do think you will begin to see the Chinese put more of a continental emphasis on Africa rather than just the eastern seaboard. And I think there'll be very hard questions around what are the implications of debt in African countries that the BRI poses. More important than the BRA, in my opinion, is to watch the growth of the AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Mm. I think there's somewhere around 10 African countries now that are members. The number keeps on growing. And I think to Ansetse's point, in some ways, AIIB is a better tool for, for Africa than ironically called the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. But let's, you know, again, we, we said the Chinese suck at marketing. So let's just kind of <laughs> get past that. But nonetheless, AIIB is a tool that I think that they're using for infrastructure projects and and for financing and it doesn't have all of the other complexities that BRI has and none of necessarily of all the negative baggage so watch the space for the growth of AIIB in Africa right better governance and, and all of that stuff a whole lot more transparency yeah great point uh, and Zetsuwera and Eric Olander thank you so much both for taking the time to talk to us uh, let me remind everyone who doesn't already listen to Eric and Kobus's terrific podcast that they should subscribe right away the China in Africa podcast from the China Africa project 
Uh, let's go on to recommendations. Uh, but before we do that, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. If you enjoy the Seneca Podcast, the other shows in the network, like the fantastic Tech Buzz and China Econ Talk, the wide-ranging content on SupChina, then the very best thing you can do is to sign up for SupChina Access. Your support makes it possible for us to keep bringing you the reporting, the conversations, the videos, the all of it. Uh, on to recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? My recommendation, I would like to uh, recommend something not really connected to China, but to Africa, a book called I Didn't Do It For You, How the World Betrayed a Small African Nation by Michelle Arong. Um It's about Eritrea and how the world basically screwed it over. Um, if you like uh, her writing, I can also highly recommend another book by her called In the Footsteps of Mr. Kurtz, Living on the Brink of Disaster in Mobutu's Congo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you want some laughter? <laughs> Bye. Hi. Okay, Jeremy. That's a great recommendation. Uh, thanks, thanks so much, man. I'll ad-lib something about that later. Uh, Eric, on to you first. What do you have for us? So one of the obsessive compulsive disorders that I have is posting on Facebook every five hours, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and following China Africa news to a level that is really not healthy. So it's, <laughs> you know, and I just kind of submit myself to just horrific reporting, particularly from the United States and Europe, on uh, on this subject. And so it's refreshing when something kind of pops out and it's just brilliantly done. And I don't say that very often. If people listen to the show know I'm, I'm a pretty big cynic of the press coverage of this topic. So Ed Wong, who's an old friend of the show, of yours, yeah, uh, you know, he's a longtime former China correspondent. Uh, he went down to uh, Uganda and wrote an article for the Sunday New York Times competing against Chinese loans. U.S. companies face long odds in Africa. And I think in so many ways, he spoke to all of the challenges that we talked about today that the United States faces. And he did it in a way which was, you know, which was sensitive, it was balanced, it didn't kind of rely on the traditional debt trap diplomacy, predatory lending, neocolonialism type of shorthand that uh, too many journalists use. So I highly recommend Ed Wong's piece, uh, Competing Against Chinese Loans, U.S. Companies Face Long Odds in F Africa. Fantastic in, uh, reporter. The New York Times. I'm not at Excellent. all surprised. I mean, that's 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 great. I'm really glad to hear. I have not gotten to that piece yet, but I'm going to, to do that right away. Uh, thanks. Thanks very much. I would have loved to know about that I guess I, in my preparation for this, but thanks thanks very much. That's a great recommendation. Anzetsa, what do you have for us? Well, for me, uh, one of my favorite uh, books that I've read or structures I've read is um, The Rhinoceros by Eugene Ionesco. It really talks about identity hmm, yeah. and what constitutes identity. And I think this is particularly pertinent from an African perspective in terms of Sino-African relations and U.S.-Africa relations. Because in the past, I think African identity was very much informed by sort of European and North American preferences. But I think as we see more African students go to China, um, understand Chinese culture, start to speak, speak Chinese, come back to Africa, become the heads of government of African institutions, become the heads of African private sector. It will be very interesting to see what that does in terms of African identity and our relationship with the world. So I think that that, that book, um, Rhinoceros by Eugenia Nesco, is, is an interesting approach to sort of identity and identity politics. He's, he's an absurdist, Yeah, right? he is. Absurdist literature. So it's a very strange uh, book. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, it's a very I've weird a play, one. Right. Yeah, it's a very weird one. But I think he uh, tackles sort of how context is what defines identity rather than some, you know, um, objective, uh, clinical 
um, notion that it's the context really defines identity and what is accepted versus what is not accepted. So I think definitely from an African perspective, the people who will be running the continent in 30 years, most of them probably would have gone to school in China, not uh, New York or London. And what will that do in terms of Africa's identity globally? So I think uh, that, that that book is a very interesting insight into those sorts of issues. That's a great suggestion, great suggestion. Thank you very much. Uh, mine also book, uh, it's Lake Success by the author Gary Steingart. Uh, probably his best novel to date, I have to say. Uh, there's these characters that, I mean, you know, he's sometimes prone, I mean, he's a comic writer often. Uh, he draws these kind of cartoonish uh, grotesques as characters. Uh, often they're really soaked in pathos, but this time the characters, uh, although also very much, you know, soaked in pathos, uh, somehow he manages to nudge you toward real empathy toward them. Uh, it's all about the disgusting excesses of, of Wall Street hedge fund types, about, but lots of other things, about marriage, about uh, autism, about the immigrant experience, about just tons more. It's all set against the backdrop of the 2016 electoral race. Highly recommend it. I really think it's Gary Steingart's best work to date. So, uh, Thanks once again to both of you. Anzetsi, You're welcome. Uh, just, just terrific hearing from you. I mean, wow. It's great to it's be here. Great. Thank you. And Eric, I'm so glad we could finally have you on the show. My God. It's Likewise. as yeah. Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah. Thanks, Kaiser. Thanks, Kaiser. Thanks, Anzet. Thanks, Eric. What a pleasure. Thank you both. And so uh, let me look forward to collaborating with you in the future. It's just, and thanks for, again, taking the time on this Really, tri-continental recording, kind of an amazing thing that we're able to do. <laughs> it's yeah. going to be a first for you yeah. guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Special thanks this week to our former intern, Eric Meister Eno, who's studying at NC State here in North Carolina and focusing on Chinese investment in East Africa. He helped Jason and I bat around some ideas for this show. Please check out his young but very promising podcast on the Belt and Road called The Belt and Road Podcast. Drop us an email. Make sure to leave us a rating on Apple iTunes Store. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. We'll see you next week and take care.